Hey everyone, it's Paul here with the Divided Families Podcast, and I just wanted to preface this conversation between Eugene and Jenna Gilbert from Human Rights First by echoing her takeaway uh, for us at the end of this episode of questioning ourselves and asking what would motivate somebody to leave behind their families, their hometowns, their communities, and try to find an opportunity and settle down in a completely new country. And of course, uh, this question applies to migrants entering the U.S. at the southern border. But from our experience on this podcast, talking to various different groups and communities, it applies to virtually every story of immigration and every story of family separation. And before Eugene and Jenna get into the nuts and bolts of advocacy and refugee and asylum issues, especially at the U.S.-Mexico border. I just wanted to step back and echo this very, very important question uh, that Jenna raised that hopefully helps us empathize with people even beyond just the images that the media leaves us. So without further ado, here's Eugene and Jenna Gilbert. the heavy demands of a lawyer schedule. Thank you for having me. Today, we're going to be quickly talking about um, a little bit about what Human Rights First does. And this is actually the first episode about the um, issue at the U.S. southern border, Mexico border. But Human Rights First actually does a lot more than that. So could you actually just tell us a little bit about what Human Rights First does and then also like your role here? Sure. So we're primarily an advocacy organization that, as you mentioned, challenges the U.S. to live up to its ideals. Um, Our advocacy areas are kind of broken up into three different buckets. Um, We do advocacy on refugee and asylee issues, um, as well as national security issues and um, uh, issues involving U.S. foreign policy. Um, So those are kind of the three broader buckets. Within, essentially separate from the advocacy work, we also do representation in the U.S. of asylum seekers who are seeking asylum here in the United States. And more recently, those that are stuck at the U.S.-Mexico border who are actually seeking asylum in the United States but are stuck in Mexico. The representation work that we do on that front is what I'm involved in primarily. So we have uh, currently have four offices for Human Rights First uh, throughout the United States, New York, D.C., Houston, and Los Angeles. In our L.A. office, we essentially exclusively do representation of asylum seekers, although we do um, work in conjunction with our advocacy team on refugee and asylee related issues um, as they kind of support the refugee representation um, efforts that we are involved in. Mm, And just to go over a little bit of like terminology, I guess, what is the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker? Yeah, so all asylum seekers are refugees in that they must meet the definition, excuse me, the definition of a refugee in order to be seeking asylum in the United States, right? So they have to have fled their home country, uh, have suffered past persecution or have a well-founded fear of future persecution on account of their race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political opinion. So anyone that meets that definition and is seeking protection in the United States is doing so through the U.S. domestic asylum process. So they are refugees 
refugees, but they're seeking that recognition in the United States and therefore they're asylum seekers. And I guess one follow-up question I had for that was what organization uh, sets the standard for what qualifies as a refugee or an asylum seeker. I think I had heard a little bit of news about how the definition can be used as a loophole at times. So yeah, I was just curious about that. So the definition of refugee actually comes from the UN Refugee Convention. So that convention is from 1951. Refugee Convention was not originally signed onto by the United States, but the the protocol of 1967 was signed onto. So after we signed onto the protocol, we essentially incorporated that definition of refugee. We didn't then incorporate that into U.S. law until the Refugee Act of 1980. And so the U.S. definition of refugee is almost verbatim from what comes from the Refugee Convention. So that's the set definition. Now, the problem is that there's some terminology in the actual definition that's a little bit ambiguous, right? And so that's where we see that the courts um, and, uh, you know, adjudicators, frontline adjudicators like immigration judges and asylum officers are kind of working within that definition to figure out what exactly it means. So previously, when I mentioned that you had to have suffered past persecution or have a well-founded fear of future persecution, you know, what what's persecution yeah. varies, right, between adjudicator to adjudicator. So that's something that's been litigated a lot in the courts and has kind of changed uh, the other thing that's oftentimes litigated is what, for instance, I mentioned the five protected grounds. You have to be seeking asylum on account of one of those five protected grounds, race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political opinion. Mm-hmm. Some of those grounds are very clear, right? Yeah. Like nationality. We have a very clear understanding of what someone's nationality is or is not. Sometimes not, yeah. <laughs> right? But, yeah. um, but it's it's clearer. Or religion, for instance, mm-hmm. that can have a very, that has clearer parameters um, that people can pretty much understand without having to have some technical law degree or, you know, being an, an expert on the issue. But what does someone's membership in a particular social group mean? Yeah. Right. That doesn't have any meaning on its face value. And so what we've seen is that the courts have spent a lot of years trying to figure out what exactly that does mean. And so when we talk about the refugee definition kind of expanding and contrasting, a lot of it comes down to these more technical issues of what we mean by a membership in a particular social group or or some other aspect of the definition. It's not that the definition has changed. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, just that we're figuring out what those um, different elements of it mean. Mm-hmm. And do you think that definition is, I don't know, fair given that like it has to be ambiguous, right? Well, in some ways it should be ambiguous because it should allow for continuing uh, recognition of refugees based off of new new circumstances occurring, right? Um, you know, when the definition of a, refu- of, the, uh, of a refugee came out in the 1950s, we were living in a very different world than we're living in today. And so there should be some flexibility in the definition. The problem that we're seeing, especially today in the United States, is that this has now become kind of up to a political whim of an administration that doesn't want to allow really anyone to get asylum in the United States. And so they're trying to dramatically reshape and and restrict what that definition means. So there have been some efforts amongst Congress and uh, and others to try to be a little bit more explicit about what types of groups, for instance, would qualify as a particular social group or, or things like that, so that it's not just at the whim of the president, you know, who sees a lot of people, for instance, fleeing from Central America, who are primarily fleeing gang violence or domestic violence and things like that, for him to then just direct his attorney general to say, that's it. 
no more. We're not going to allow anyone who's fleeing domestic violence to be considered a member of a particular social group. So I guess fleeing violence based on, uh, so the typical rhetoric in the news is, you know, like, oh, they're fleeing gang violence or, uh, you know, as you said, it's not as obvious as race or religion. Or political opinion or something like that. Yeah. uh So how does that fall under social group. So oftentimes those are the types of claims that fall into this fifth category, right, of membership in a particular social group. So for about 20 years, there was ongoing litigation um, on the issue of domestic violence, for instance. That's that's one of the main categories that we're seeing of asylum seekers that are fleeing, not just Central America, but, you know, many parts of the world, right, where women don't have equal rights. Domestic violence matters are treated as kind of domestic disputes. Police don't get involved. There's really no legal protections. And again, this isn't just Central America. This happens in a lot of different places. And so for about 20 years, uh, there has been ongoing litigation on on this issue. Um, started with a case called Matter of RA. Essentially, it was a horrific domestic violence case. Uh, it was litigated at many multiple levels of the immigration court system and, and appellate system. Multiple attorneys general actually took the case under consideration. We were hoping to get some 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 guidance uh, and a precedential decision, and ultimately that didn't happen. But what did happen is it kind of paved the way for additional litigation in, in future cases. And there was another case where the Department of Homeland Security, who's the kind of opposing counsel in these in these litigation matters, essentially said that they agreed that there could be circumstances in which someone who'd fled domestic violence could be eligible as a member of a particular social group. Again, we didn't get a precedential case from that, but we did have the language from DHS in a brief, actually where they said, we agree under these circumstances, this could be a cognizable social group. Great, right? So people went forward with that. It wasn't until 2014 uh, with a case called Matter of ARCG when um, the Board of Immigration Appeals, which is the appellate level court for the immigration court system, um, actually provided a precedential decision saying that in that case, I believe it was uh, the social group that was constructed was married women in you know some Central American country, I think it was Guatemala, um, who were unable to leave a domestic relationship constituted a cognizable social group. So we had some precedent starting in 2014 and, and it was in June of 2018 that the attorney general decided to essentially um, toss out the window (laughs) and came out with a case called Matter of AB, which basically says that they think it would be very difficult for any instance of a woman fleeing domestic violence to be eligible as a member of a particular social group. Not impossible, but difficult and only under certain criteria. And so it's a long journey. (laughs) So how does the attorney general overturn that precedent? So the board of immig- or so the the immigration court system is not a separate uh, judicial function. It's under the um, executive, oh, okay, under the Department of Justice. So the immigration courts and the board of immigration appeals all report to the attorney general. So the attorney general has the ability to actually pick and choose and and decide when they want to create precedential case law in certain matters. So in this case, the attorney general picked this case actually from the immigration court system, not from the board of immigration appeals, and decided that. It wanted to use that as the poster case to essentially reject thousands of cases of women fleeing domestic violence. So what is the story behind that? Like, is that how this has always been? And yeah, I mean, it's just like, it sounds like it shouldn't be a third branch. So yeah, I mean, so the immigration courts aren't aren't a separate judiciary. I mean, they were set up as a function of the executive. The you know president does have the authority to uh, decide immigration matters and immigration is within the, the, the purview of the executive. So it's a real problem that we're seeing now. And actually, 
You'll notice that there have been calls, um, not just from you know NGOs like ours, but also from the uh, immigration judges' own um, their own union, excuse me, to actually make the immigration court system an independent judiciary, so that it's not at the whim of you know, whatever president is in the White House at any given time. So that you can't just have an attorney general in the case of matter of AB, it was uh, Attorney General Sessions, who had for a long time been spewing his views about, you know, his anti-asylum views. And 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 so, of course, when you get a president in, in office like the one that we currently have and you get an attorney general like the one that we have, they're doing everything they can to dismantle the asylum system from a variety of different angles. I think now would be a good time to switch gears into kind of like what is your day-to-day life like and I guess one follow-up question I had for that is how do you I mean when the odds are so stacked against you as I had just uh, discovered a couple minutes ago um, how do you kind of push forward and keep going? So so I run our Los Angeles office. And as I mentioned, we primarily focus on providing representation to asylum seekers here in the U.S. But we are a little bit unique in that we don't provide direct representation to all of our clients. What we do instead is we partner with law firms, um, mostly large law firms um, that are national and international in scope. And we provide them with training, guidance, mentorship uh, in the process so that they can take on the representation of our clients and that we can have a broader reach than what we would be able to have if we were just representing people on our own. So essentially, you know, in the 2018, which is the last year that we've done the audit for for our numbers, we had over $60 million of donated legal services from law firms to provide representation for our clients, uh, something over more than 100,000 hours of pro bono legal services. So, you know, that's a lot more time and energy and money than we would be able to put into our own cases on our own. So we were able to kind of better leverage the work that we do by partnering with these with these law firms. So what we do on a day-to-day basis is essentially we identify the individuals that are in need of representation. We do a pretty robust screening of those cases. We work to try to partner them with law firms. And then once we've partnered them with the firms, then we work on a day-to-day basis with the lawyers and we provide them with training. We review all of their documents. We case strategize. um, We provide them with ongoing technical and other support as they need, as they provide the representation. Now, we do a lot of cases in-house as well. Um, We're certainly not able to place each and every case that we have with with a law firm. But that is kind of the bread and butter of what we do. And we're able to better leverage our manpower here by by partnering with firms. So a lot of our time is spent training, mentoring, working with firms, uh, and also identifying clients in, in the initial stages. Beyond that, especially here in our LA office, we do a lot of work at the border. And so we are currently representing several individuals who are subject to what's called the Migrant Protection Protocols, also known as Remain in Mexico. Those folks that we're representing out of our office are currently located in Tijuana. And so our attorneys are actually representing individuals that are stuck in Tijuana. They're brought to San Diego to the immigration court for their court hearings. But essentially, all of our representation happens both remotely and we send teams down to Tijuana to meet with our clients in person on a regular basis to prepare them for their court hearings. So a lot of our work right now is involves that. We also are heavily active in the local detention facility. Uh, I say local, it's out in Adelanto, which is about an hour and a half drive from here. But we do provide a lot of representation to um, asylum seekers who have recently arrived 
who are in need of representation out there. Uh, a lot of those cases are placed with pro bono attorneys, but a lot of those cases are also done um, in-house by our lawyers. Is there anything that's different between the media's like portrayal of the situation at the border and kind of what you see? Or are they kind of similar? I mean, yeah, I mean, they are pretty similar. Um, our advocacy team just released a report before the holiday on all of the documented incidents of violence against uh, asylum seekers who are at the border who've been forced to remain there. And we have a, a website dedicated to this where people can actually report individual instances of, of violence. And this um, got additional traction because immediately thereafter, there was the report of the individual who was actually murdered in Tijuana. He was an asylum seeker. And actually, we had we had um, Telemundo came in and interviewed me about that with regards to our report and the, and the recent news of the individual who unfortunately um, lost his life while he was still seeking asylum. So I think that the media has been doing a pretty good job of being aware of what the the risks are. But that being said, I mean, it's it's overwhelming. I mean, it's something that as good of a job as the media can do, it's really something you need to see in person. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of people who are stuck along the Mexico border, some in places that are so dangerous that lawyers can't even really go there, you know, and there's no place for people to meet in a confidential space, which for lawyers is pretty important. And so there are some really significant both security issues, but also fundamental deprivations of due process. And that's something that's not quite as sexy to report on. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, but it's it's detrimental to their asylum cases. I just heard a report that of the thousands of people who have here who have cases along the Mexican border who are subject to MPP, only 11 have won their cases, 11 people. And um, I think I can't remember exactly the percentage, but I think that about 25% of the cases of those tens of thousands of cases that were pending have been completed so far. So we're talking 11 people out of, oh, I don't know, 30,000 people have won their cases. One of those people was from our office. He was actually the very first person to win his asylum case after being subjected to MPP. So there are a lot of people that are doing their best. There are a lot of really wonderful organizations that are doing work at the border, but it's just a drop in the bucket. And even for the very few people, the very small percentage of people that are able to get representation, there are still tremendous barriers for that actual representation, ways in which the system is very clearly creating effectively a, a wall, right? An asylum wall. People are not allowed to actually gain the protection that we as a country have said we want to provide. We, you know, we signed on to the Refugee Convention through the protocol. We have a Refugee Act in our domestic statutes. You know, we said that this was something that we cared about. And yet we are creating an environment where it is nearly impossible for people who have fled horrific violence and who very legitimately fear death to actually obtain protection. I guess the yeah i mean i guess the question that i want to ask is how do you get people to really understand the gravity of the situation um as hard as that might be whether it be through statistics or storytelling and i guess another question that i had for you was um, how did you get involved personally given that obviously this is a hot topic now but you must have been working towards this for a long time so yeah i mean i i don't know the answer to the first question i don't i don't know how 
to get people to care about this more. I think maybe, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not really my field either, right? If I were a communications expert, maybe I would be doing a better job of this. But, and in my experience though, it's, you have to personalize it for people. They have to, they have to feel like they have some sort of stake in the game. I feel like it's oftentimes people who, I don't know, have family members who have been refugees or um, have experienced something somewhat similar in their own lives that end up, um, feeling more passionate about the issue. I mean, you also saw a lot of people, for instance, in uh, the summer of 2018, when family separation, when the family separation crisis was at its peak, suddenly become overwhelmingly emotionally attached to the issue. Everyone wanted to help because the the images uh, and the audio and the video of children in cages, you know, being ripped from the hands of their parents was very impactful. Everyone who's a parent or you know, knows a parent or, yeah, or is or part, is of, part of a family, it resonated with them. I don't know what the answer is to get people to care about what's happening here. I mean, I will say, you know, it's not just adults that are being stuck, uh, that are being forced to, to stay in these horrifically dangerous environments uh, along the Mexico border. Places where even our own State Department says that people, a U, a U.S. citizens should not travel, period. You know, and they're living outdoors. They're living in tents. They're living with inadequate access to to normal facilities, right? But there are children with them. It's not just the adults. I mean, but we should care about human beings regardless of how old yeah. they are, right? So I don't know. I, I think maybe, I think we need to do a better job of storytelling perhaps as advocates and seeing the images is helpful and not just hearing, but also seeing the images. So I don't know. That's my lackluster response to the first question. I think it's also interesting because social media has been able to bring these issues uh home in a way that was not possible before but yeah i just kind of asked that for fun given that you know we're just starting this podcast and kind of are figuring out what we want it to be so yeah i was just curious about that but i guess yeah the follow-up to that question was uh like, why did you get involved in this issue? Do you have a family connection? Oh, I mean, so me, me personally? No, I, I have no, I have no family connection. I have no, I, I mean, I'm sure I have a, an immigrant story somewhere in my background, but it's not something that is um, anytime in the, in the recent past or that I have any specific connection to. But, you know, I, I have just always had a very strong connection to migrant populations, just uh, a personal interest, uh, a human interest in migrant populations. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think I was just uh, I had a real interest in kind of the human rights perspective of migration. And I'm just, uh, you know, I'm, I think I'm generally a pretty curious person. I have a real interest in other people and other cultures. And this, uh, you know, this job, I mean, I'm interacting with people from all over the world all the time and and learning really fascinating stories of resilience and courage and bravery. Also learning really heartbreaking stories about um, the horrible things that human beings can do to one another. But yeah, I mean, so for me, I, I just, I, most people tend to have kind of a more personal connection for why they get involved in immigration. I know a lot of really great immigration attorneys that are first generation Americans or, um, you know, have very recent immigrant stories. And, and, and that makes sense to me. But yeah, I think I, I just have always always had a really strong desire to work with different people of different cultures. I think that I read also online that you majored or had a degree in international relations. Is yeah. Also true. So how do you, and I'm also obviously interested in international relations. So how do you kind of reconcile like the day to day, you know, very singular, like 
intimate kind of um, interactions with the very smaller impact. I don't want to say smaller impact, but you know, like smaller scale impact Mm -hmm. with kind of your uh, curiosity for the larger scale. And I guess Paul and I, uh, my friend who started this podcast with me, often talk about things like the North Korean issue and how, uh, you know, divided families around the world sometimes are just left up to the you know, the whims of people who are constantly rotating in the scales of entire government. So how do you kind of deal with agency, I guess, in terms of the things that you can change and things that you can't change? Well, so that's something that I actually really appreciate about working here at Human Rights First. So not a lot of organizations do both representation and broader advocacy, as well as impact litigation. And so, you know, this is one of the few organizations nationally that actually does all three. And so we can have a day-to-day impact on individual client lives. Uh, We also have a broader impact in our representation by partnering with other law firms. And so we're able to help way more individuals than we would on our own, right? So we have those kind of day-to-day, one-on-one interactions, but then we're also working on broader advocacy issues, trying to, you know, put forth legislation to, you know, overhaul the Refugee Act, uh, suing the government, suing, you know, (laughs) suing the government um, uh, to try to change anti-asylum policy. So that's nice because you you're connected to the work by helping individuals, but you also are working towards more systemic, broader based change uh, Mm -hmm. at the same time. If I was just doing one or the other, I think that that wouldn't be quite as fulfilling Um, because, as as you mentioned, you know, it's it's very frustrating to work with individual clients when you know that the system is crumbling around you. Uh, And on the other hand, you know, working just for broad based change, I think if you're not connected into the clients, that's you're you're missing something. You're not seeing the day to day of how these big big policies are actually impl- uh, implemented and affecting individuals on the ground. So that's that's helpful. But I think that you know you're you're right to point out that these are really challenging times. I think you had an earlier question that I that I bypassed of like how do you <laughs> how do you deal with with the craziness that's happening and yeah, I just like asking that because I feel like it's relevant to everybody these days, especially with the barrage of information and yeah, just there's just so much to care about. So I guess when I ask, uh, how do you get people to care? I would feel like it's not that people don't care, but that is just a lot to take in at once. I mean, that's a real challenge, right? Because we're whole human beings and we care about a lot of different things at, at any given time, right? I, I just happen to do work in this area. And so, you know, my, my job requires that I stay on top of it. My job requires that I'm, you know, when a new policy comes out and it impacts a bunch of our cases and I have pro bono attorneys who aren't immigration attorneys, you know, they're not experts in this and they have no idea what any of that means. You know, I have to break things down and synthesize it and, and help them understand how this does or does not impact their, their clients case. But there's a lot of other stuff going on. I mean, I don't know. It's um, how does anyone deal with that right now? I guess uh, kindness, <laughs> like in your day to day life is helpful. Um, I don't know. We spend a lot of time, you know, I work for a nonprofit. We spend a lot of time talking about things like self-care, right? Mm-hmm. And how to deal with vicarious trauma, uh, not just from the the stories that you're hearing from your clients, because, you know, you're you internalize a lot of that stuff when you hear horrific stories about sexual violence and, you know, torture and things like that on a daily basis, it impacts you. It's impossible to not impact someone. But then when you add the layer of like, you know, World War Three, yeah. 
and, um, you know, and other things. And this is a difficult job to begin with. And it's made 10 times more difficult by the environment that we're in. So I don't know. I don't have a great answer for that. I, I, uh, is there anything that you do personally? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I have a dog that I put a lot of my like love and energy into, and it's great because I get kind of the physical, like, you know, take him out for walks. I get the, the exercise component, but also I, I find that I'm just like very tactile with my dog. So just <laughs> petting my dog kind of like calms me yeah. down. <laughs> um, you know, yoga. Um, Those are all good because yeah. I mean, I don't have a dog or do yoga. I should probably do both of those things. <laughs> Yeah, I just feel like it's just an important question to ask these days, especially given that it's not a, you know, it's not at all a unique situation. No. And I mean, it's something that people don't always talk about of like what practices that they're implementing in their day to day life to make sure that they stay healthy and sane. I, um, I went on sabbatical actually in 2019. Uh, so I had three months off. It was short, but uh, in this world, you know, in this type of work, it was, uh, I mean, it was like life changing. You know, I, I literally disconnected from work completely. I had no work email on my phone. I had nothing. I had to just like have blind trust that people would not burn down my office and that everything would be here when I came back. But really having that time to step away from the day to day, because you're right, it's such a constant onslaught that it, I mean, it's enough to drive anyone crazy. So having a moment to step away uh, was really, was really tremendously helpful. I'd mentioned to you before we started recording that uh, I'm applying to law schools now. I'm a law school applicant. And I guess I was just wondering about your advice, especially given that so many people these days are applying to law school, given the uh, recent events. Yeah, it's so funny. It's never been sexier than this moment to be a lawyer, right? Everybody is trying to go to law school now. <laughs> and I guess part of the question is, uh, I guess, among many of my millennial friends, there are many of us who want to kind of change career tracks, whether it be from a software engineer uh, or a financial job or something where you just don't feel um, as satisfied in your work. So you want to kind of change paths and quickly kind of uh, react and become a law school applicant. So do you think that that could be imprudent? Do you think that's actually a good way to do things? I mean, what do you kind of think about that? And of course, we'll take your advice with a grain of salt. Yeah, of course, of course. No, you must do what I say on this podcast. Um, no, I mean, um, my advice, my advice is don't go to law school unless you actually think you want to be a lawyer. So that's first and foremost. I mean, it's not a fun experience. And for most people, it's a lot of money. And then after you do that, then you have to take a really, you know, unpleasant bar exam. And then you have to be a lawyer after that. I mean, you don't have to be, I guess. But I mean, you, at that point, you've committed a significant amount of time. So you might as well go for it. So don't do it unless you actually think that that's something that you want to do. Don't do it like because you hear that having a law degree is a good thing to have in your back pocket. Uh, at least that's my perspective. And then I think talking to people who are actually lawyers and in, in fields that you think that you might be interested in is really important as well, because there's what people think, uh, you know, a lawyer is and then there is what it actually is. Right. And that's very different from from lawyer to lawyer, too, in, in terms of what your field is and um, and what you do on a day to day basis. But, you know, if you think that you have an idea of what you're interested in, you know, seek out someone that 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 can, you know, tell you a little bit about what they do on a day to day basis or let you shadow them for, you know, a day in the office or something like that, just to have a better sense of what it is that you think you're going to be 
you know, actually doing um, as opposed to just seeing, you know, a lawyer on a TV show and thinking that that's what your life is going to be like. Going to the point, though, about someone having a job where they're not really feeling fulfilled. But I mean, just keep in mind that there are a lot of things that people can do to feel fulfilled that don't have to be tied up in your job. I mean, when you do something that is, you know, that would be perceived as being very uh, like do-goodery, right? It's very difficult to then kind of separate your, your life from your work. And that's not always great for your mental health. (laughs) That's not always great for your relationships. Uh, Whereas if you do something that's more of a nine to five and you get a good amount of money and, you know, then you can pursue your other interests and the other things that make you feel good in your life and, you know, and not and not have to, you know, be all consumed by this one thing all the time. So I think that there are other there are other ways that we can feel good about our contributions. And I mean, everyone needs a software engineer. Like, you know, that's something that that the world just needs, right? Um, so do something that you that you like to do. I mean, you you know, definitely you should you should enjoy whatever it is that you spend your time doing, I guess, but it doesn't have to necessarily be something that is as fulfilling as uh, you know, and all-consuming as, as something like this. I mean, if, if you really think you can handle it, that's great. But a lot of people, I see a lot of burnout in this field. And um, you're not really helping anyone if you're burned out after a couple of years. And as we come to the end of time, I just wanted to ask the usual question that we try to end our conversations with, which is just, um, what do you think is kind of one big thing that you wish that listeners would take away from our conversation? Um, you can add on to things that you've already, that we've already talked about or um, something that maybe we haven't covered yet. Yeah, I mean, I think that something that I would like people to think about is think about more is, I guess, what what the circumstances must be for someone to to flee their country and seek asylum anywhere in the world, you know, not just here in the United States. Right. We've seen in the last several years, you know, pretty horrific stories of people crossing the Mediterranean and people dying in the process and washing up on the shores of, of Europe. People don't just leave their home country and their families and everything they've ever known and their culture just for the hell of it. <laughs> you know, there has to be a very significant driving force behind it. In the case of asylum seekers in particular, I mean, these are people who have fled pretty horrific violence. When the choice is stay in your home country and and die or, you know, risk your children's lives or flee and risk a horrifically dangerous journey where you also might die, but at the end of that journey, you might get the protection that your family needs and you might be able to rebuild your life and live in safety. You know, that's not an easy choice for people to make and they're not making it lightly. Um, you know, people often say like, oh, I do anything for my children. I kill for my kids. Right. But those people are oftentimes the same people that are saying, well, why are these people coming to the United States? Why, why, why are they seeking asylum? Well, I mean, again, people people are not taking this decision lightly, and it's and it's usually done because the alternative is 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 horrific. I mean, the alternative is death or serious harm. And you know, we used to be a country that valued that valued human rights, that valued protecting people that needed protection. I mean, it was Reagan who called the United States a a beacon on a hill, right? That we should be offering protection to people who need it. Uh, this used to be a non-controversial kind of bipartisan issue, and it's suddenly become weaponized. And ultimately, we're saying that because, I don't know, because the refugees look like the people that they look like um, or come from the countries that they come from, that their lives are no longer um, as valuable as 
as I don't know, maybe, um, you know, refugees that were that were fleeing during the Cold War, for instance. So I'd like people to to just kind of think about why someone would risk what they're risking. Why would they be willing to stay in Mexico in some of the most dangerous cities in in the entire country for the chance to seek asylum? Because there's something behind that. And that's a it should be a very common uh, human experience and kind of a uniting um, ideal of, you know, providing something for your family and seeking protection. I guess as you were talking about that, it made me think about how my mom likes to tell me and my brother that, you know, it's really fortunate for you guys to even have a home to go back to during the holidays or breaks or whatever. And I mean, that is obviously a huge privilege and something that we tend to take for granted. But yeah, I guess just listening to what you're talking about just kind of really helps hammer that point in. Mm -hmm. So we just did a, um, we did a a holiday gift drive for some of our clients for the holidays and my family ended up sponsoring um, one of the the clients. And so we got them some, you know, gifts off of their wish list and everything. Um, But it was really important for me, for, for my stepkids who are 15 and 17 to kind of hear the backstory uh, about, about the clients that, that we were, that we were, um, helping to fulfill their their holiday wish list for. And the the family that we we had was a, a mother and her two teenage daughters and the daughters were 15 and 17 and they're lovely lovely family, lovely girls and in their kind of they did kind of a little summary of who they were and what they were doing and everything. And and the two girls, again, 15 and 17, uh, when they came to meet with our social worker here to, to talk about what their wish list was, um, you know, they were really excited to talk about school and to talk about their futures. And one of them, you know, pulled out a report card and she had all A's and B's and she was really proud of herself. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just so happy that I have, I, I can go to school and not be afraid that I don't have to be worried about my safety. I can just get an education. And, um, you know, of those two girls, one of them wants to become an immigration attorney so she can help other immigrants like herself. And the other one wants to become a a psychologist so that she can help people who've been through bad things like she's been through. So I told this story to to my stepkids, right, who are 15 and 17 and who, you know, bemoan having to go back to school tomorrow, you know, and, uh, you know, I think it's such a drag that they are studying X, Y, and Z. I mean, they're great kids, but like, you know, they They've never had to worry about their... Exactly, right? They, you can take for granted some of that stuff. And when I told them that they were just so happy to be able to go to school because they didn't, they, you know, here they knew that they could go and be in safety uh, and they, you know, no one was going to like try to kill them on their way to school. That kind of hit home for them and, and they realized, wow, this is like a, this is a whole different lifestyle. This is a whole different experience. And I think it's important for us to realize some of the the benefits that we have of being in this country. And, and it's, you know, and for what? Like, I was, I just happened to be born here. So I didn't choose it. I didn't pick it. I didn't do anything spectacular to be, to, you know, to be an American citizen. It was pure luck, right? My parents were here. I was here. That's it. But I'm not any better than anyone else by virtue of the fact that I was accidentally born in the United States. I've been afforded a lot of luxuries by virtue of being here. But why, why does that make, why, why shouldn't anyone else experience that? much for tuning in to another episode of the divided families podcast if you're interested in listening to more stories of family separation or learning more about our project please follow us on social media at divided families podcast 
Thanks as always to Final Albert for the wonderful music. And see you next time. <laughs>